Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Dr. Shaista Kilji. Dr. Kilji is a professor of human and organizational learning and international affairs at the George Washington University. Her research focuses on issues related to global leadership, talent development, innovation, and cross-cultural management, with a particular emphasis on emerging economies. Dr. Kilji has written close to 100 scholarly articles and a book called Globalization Change and Learning in South Asia about the paradoxes and complexities of development within emerging economies. Last year, she co-founded the Humanizing Initiative, which helps leaders and organizations critically assess their underlying assumptions and focus on creating value through the promotion of human dignity and well-being. Dr. Kilji, welcome to American Muslim Project. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Humanizing Initiative? Yeah, so it's wonderful being here. So the Humanizing Initiative, uh, I co-founded with some of my students last year, early last year, which is 2020. And uh, the purpose of the Humanizing Initiative, um, hopefully it becomes a movement, but its vision is to humanize leaders and organizations to cultivate humanistic leadership. Um, the idea behind the Humanizing Initiative is to spread ideas that bring us all together as a global society, by which we can become more inclusive and be- we can become more humanistic in our approach. And um, hopefully, we'll continue to grow in our number and influence. Yeah. Why, why is something like that needed now? You know, I have um, studied business leadership and management all my academic career. I've studied globalization and its impact on individuals, organizations, and societies. And based on my research um, several years ago, I just um, came across this problem I consider to be a problem in my assessment of globalization is that it hasn't been able it, it hasn't been able to fulfill its promise of lifting millions of people out of poverty. And what I was witnessing, and I wasn't alone, um, there's a lot of economists who've um, noted that there's a lot rising level of global inequalities around the world. Uh, you know, I consider that a problem, not only from a social perspective, but also from a research perspective, right? So whereas economists were interested in studying the quantitative aspect of that glo- global poverty or inequality, I was more interested from a leadership, from a management perspective. I came to this conclusion that, uh, and again, it's not a new conclusion, I came to this conclusion that there's a Uh, leadership deficit um, around the world. So if you look at a lot of surveys that have been conducted around the world, uh, those surveys do indicate that public um, satisfaction with leaders, both corporate and political leaders, is at its lowest. Um, So just um, sort of compelled by that idea, I was interested in uh, studying globalization and sort of reconceptualizing it to make it better, not only for the organizations, but also for the society. And then when I was in sabbatical several years ago, I came across this uh, humanistic uh, management paradigm, and I've used it in my work for the past several years. And that's how you know I became interested in this idea of humanistic leadership, in this idea of humanistic organizations. And I've been really focusing a lot in terms of developing inclusive societies and in terms of becoming more humanistic in our approach. And when I say humanistic, I mean really um, focusing on human dignity and well-being rather than just shareholder (laughs) wealth maximization. 
That was my kind of next question is like, what, what is someone who would subscribe to this humanizing leadership? How is that different than what they're taught today, maybe in business school or from other managers? What What's the difference between the, the approach that you're you're sharing versus what people are doing now? So the predominant leadership view is uh, focused on uh, profit maximization. Um, and a humanistic paradigm actually compels us to look at four distinct drives that we have as human beings. Uh, the drive to acquire resources, which is wealth maximization. Yeah. Um, the drive to defend, which is to fight against threats or be competitive. The drive to bond, which is to create lasting relationships. And the drive to comprehend which is to experience engagement and intellectual curiosity. And predominant organizations and predominant way of thinking, unfortunately, is to focus more on drive to acquire and drive to defend. Um, to the extent that we have sort of focused too much on drive to acquire and drive to defend, and we focused exclusively on maximization. And what humanistic paradigm tells us is that humans beings are also motivated by drive to comprehend and drive to bond as well. So rather than focusing on maximization, we should be drawing in from learning and we should be drawing from practical wisdom. And that wisdom can come from different perspectives, for example, different religions around the world. Uh, the wisdom that I draw upon is, um, you know, sustainability and also co-creation and stakeholder engagement in my own work. Um, so really drawing upon that wisdom in order to balance the drive. So it's not a, it's no longer about maximizing shareholder value, maximizing your own individualistic self-interest, but rather on co-creation so that you can contribute to the well-being of the society at large. And when I really do so say society, I don't necessarily mean one nation or one country. I really do mean the entire global society or the entire planet. Can you give an example of, of someone who might be um, uh, a humanizing leader? So that's a great question I uh, often get asked. And unfortunately, I'm, I don't see too many. Um, this is a relatively newer paradigm. One thing we have to remember that humanistic leadership or humanizing leadership is not only about functional competencies or it's not only about acquiring certain skills. It's about having the wisdom and about making the right choices every single day. Um, and those choices in a way such that you're able to uh, balance the four drives that I talked about previously and balancing them in a way that you're able to not only focus on your practice, but also able to enhance your learning and wisdom at the same time. As an academic, I get asked that question, how do you develop humanistic leaders? Whereas, uh, you know, there are certain foundational principles, but I think it's a lot of uh, work that we have to engage in every single day because, you know, as leaders, whether we're in academia or organization, small, large, nonprofit or for-profit, we make decisions every single day and making sure those decisions are not only focused on maximizing your self-interest, but focusing on building a community, focusing upon building a better uh, planet and a bu uh, building a better community as well. Uh, the images that I'm getting are uh, self-reflection, journaling, meditation, and open door policy where your your direct reports can can come and find you and share what's going on with them. Are these the type of, type of things that you're you're talking about? Absolutely. So I think the first and foremost is self awareness. Um, you have to know yourself, 
and also realize that as individuals, our identities evolve and we evolve as well. So uh, engaging in that awareness um, about your own self, using that self-awareness to know others at the same time. It's also about having uh, authenticity. It's also about having a sort of engaging in um, reflection. Um, also being open uh, with respect to critical thinking and not just taking um, ideas at a superficial level, but engaging deeply with ideas and incorporating different voices and being very inclusive in your approach. So those, I would say, are some of the practices that can compel you or propel you forward. This is not something um, that I conceptualize as a as a destination. I conceptualize it as a journey that you have to engage in every single day of your life. Yeah. I feel like there have been a ton of examples in the last year, especially because of COVID and, and mass layoffs and, and whatnot of, of examples of toxic culture or poor leadership. And it seems like the Humanizing Initiative is kind of meeting that moment. And this is uh, you guys, uh, you are in the right place at the right time. Can you can you talk about kind of the trends that you've seen in the last year or so? Yeah, so fortunately, we uh, launched Humanizing Initiative way before COVID-19. But I think what COVID-19 has done is made a lot more people aware that this is the moment in our history to reconceptualize the way uh, we organize and the way we lead. We need to reconceptualize the way we manage our businesses or business organizations. So I think I'm seeing a lot more interest and I'm seeing an increased awareness. People may not be using the exact same language, but there's definitely, I think, a turning point in our history in terms of wanting to do things differently. So that's the positive that I've seen. Um, the negative that I've seen is um, still sticking with uh, focusing on uh, maximizing shareholder value and shareholder wealth and um, using layoffs, whereas CEO compensation and compensation of board of directors is, is on the rise and using those short term decisions that are eventually going to impact companies in the long run and not really adopting a long term perspective in terms of maximizing human dignity and maximizing well-being. I was just reading, um, I don't know if you're familiar, but Amazon has approximately 1.3 million employees. Wow. And it really um, it really hired a lot of employees in the past one year because people are using Amazon Prime quite a bit. Yeah. I think in 2020, it had $386 billion in sales. And 6,000 of its workers have been trying to unionize for better working conditions. Um, so I think that's just one example of how Amazon has benefited uh, from COVID-19. We all are aware of that. However, many of its workers have complained of very poor working conditions. Yeah. You know, going back to this idea of balancing. So where's the balance, right? And what can companies like Amazon and Google can do to set that example of uh, focusing more on human dignity and well-being. And the Amazon example is interesting because in, in the meantime, uh, Jeff Bezos's fortune has rise X amount. I, I don't know what the number is, but it seems like every day he's adding a billion to to his uh, his net worth. Um, and so, can you talk about this dichotomy, especially in the age of globalization, where we're seeing these kind of a, a wider um, divide between the rich and the poor? And is that happening across the world? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was the reason that I became more interested in this idea of reconceptualizing leadership, because I was um, very concerned with the rising levels of inequalities around the world, as I said earlier. And you're absolutely right. You know, CEO compensation in the past 15, 20 years has increased 200 to 250%, and that of the average production worker hasn't increased um, by the same percentile or has only increased 30 or 40%. And you're absolutely right, it is also applicable to other countries as well. For example, if you take India or China, on one hand, you can argue that globalization has increased uh, the middle class, yet at the same time, people living below $1 a day, that number Um, hasn't changed or in some ways has also increased because of COVID-19 now. As an academic or as anyone who's uh, sort of interested in this idea of uh, prosperity for everyone, when you look at those uh, facts and when you look at that evidence, it's uh, it ends up bothering you, and it did bother me for a very long time. Are we seeing a shift in power away or uh, what what is that relationship with power between leaders and and followers? So theoretically, there is a shift in power between uh, leaders and followers. Um, I would say the newer or more contemporary understanding of leadership pays an equal amount of attention to followership. For example, humanistic leadership, it is about human dignity and well-being. And it's regardless of your position, it's regardless of the skin, uh, the color of your skin, or it's regardless of your gender as well. However, that power dynamic is very difficult to change uh, because of uh, structural inequities that we find within organizations. If I were to make one statement, which I think in my mind is very much true, is that organizations reinforce inequities that we see within organizations. Um, Actually, uh, one research project that I just completed uh, focused exactly on that. Uh, when we talk about rising levels of global inequalities and we look at the world, uh, look at countries around the world, one major contributor and a significant contributor is um, organizations. The way they are structured, their cultures, instead of uh, mitigating or instead of addressing those inequalities, these end up actually reinforcing the same inequalities. You talked about CEO compensation that is also a significant contributor. And in other ways as well, even if you look at the structures of the organization, their practices, uh, who are included in conversation, whose voice matters, whose voice doesn't matter. Um, Organizations, unfortunately, do have very inequitable structures in place. Yeah, and it seems like that in certain cultures, I guess in in America, that, that ends up harming women and minorities, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining. Is that, is that correct? Uh, absolutely. So it ends up negatively impacting uh, women, people of color, indigenous people, and people who are marginalized in the society. I would say in the past couple of years, those issues are um, being discussed and being researched. So I'm very optimistic, maybe in a few years' time, and I think also because of racial awakening that we've witnessed in the past one year or so, I'm optimistic and I hope, uh, you know, together we'd be able to at least look at those structures and address, um, you know, inequities that we see within organizations, which are then reinforced in the society as well. We're going to take a quick break. Up next, Dr. Kilji will read us some of her new poetry. 
You're listening to American Muslim Project. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Dr. Shaista Kilji, a professor at the George Washington University and a founder of the Humanizing Initiative. Dr. Kilji is originally from Pakistan and did her graduate work in the UK at the University of Cambridge. Her research has led to the defining of global leadership crises as one of the contributing factors in global inequalities. Because of my day job advising startups, I asked her how founders at an early stage should be thinking about leadership and culture when they launch. So once you have fostered a certain culture, it's very hard to change, right? So I think for startup companies, it's really a a great opportunity for them because they have this opportunity to develop the right type of culture. And I think your question is, what can they do? What they can do is become more aware of the idea of balance so that uh, the balance is not tilted in uh, in one direction or the other direction. Um, so when they think about making decision, um, they think about evaluating and assessing what those decisions will meet for their shore- shareholders, but what they, those decisions will also meet for the will mean for their employees and also for the society in general. And I think I'll also go back to this idea of self-reflection. I'd also go back to this idea of public reflection where you're engaging with your employees in terms of whether or not the culture allows them to speak up, to voice their concerns. Is the culture inclusive? And what can you do on a daily basis to make that more inclusive for people or marginalized in the society, or maybe marginalized in your organization as well. Um, I think the other thing I can think of, which I haven't talked about yet, is our conceptualization of time, right? Time is money in the United States. Time is money in in a lot of cultures. Yeah, sure. And I, I would argue that not only do we need to reconceptualize our understanding of leadership, but we also need to reconceptualize our understanding of time. Uh, we're so taken by this objective time, which is the ticking of the clock, right? So, you know, there are 24 hours in a day, there's 365 days in a year, and we wanna do more and more and more, and we wanna do it fast because time is money. When we are in that mindset, we forget um, that there's also this subjective time, is that how we experience time not only how we ourselves experience time, but how others experience time as well. So when you pause, step back and reflect on time, not as um, 
only in terms of the clock, but also in terms of how am I experiencing it and how are others experiencing or the subjective time, I think that would really bring about a transformational change or shift in the way you make decisions, also in the way you develop culture as well. Can you talk a little bit about your international work um, and how that relates to uh, leadership and, and your, your training? I, you know, my my dissertation focused on emerging economies and um, in particular Pakistan. I was interested in seeing how multinational companies, what do they practice and how do they transfer those practices to emerging economies? So that's what I studied earlier in my career. And then I was able to expand that work. So I have looked at a lot of emerging economies, uh, including India, Pakistan, a lot of countries in Southeast Asia, some Middle Eastern countries, and also in Europe and Latin America as well. I think um, that work really provided not only a well-rounded understanding of globalization and the impact that it was having on individuals around the world. So I wasn't really focused on one country. I was interested in learning more about other countries as well. So that really gave me a very well-rounded view of the overall impact of globalization. And that brought me to this um, you know, search for a better world where um, yeah. we are more equitable with each other. And that's how, you know, I also look at, you know, you must have noticed I said earlier, uh, you know, when I say society, I don't mean one particular country. I really do mean uh, the entire planet. That's what my training has been looking at the world at large and finding ways of making it better for people around the world and making it better for the entire planet. Yeah. You know, just as you were talking right there, I was wondering, are you net positive or net negative on globalization? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, I am positive for responsible globalization. I do critique globalization in the way it has been rolled out. I think we are at that stage or have been at that stage in our society where we need to look at the pros and cons of globalization because it cannot be business as usual. We need to look at how we have benefited societies and what do we need to do better in order to benefit people who have been marginalized or people who have not benefited from globalization. So I um, I refer to it as responsible globalization. So how do we become more responsible as we roll out the next phase of globalization? Yeah, I've, I've never heard that phrase before, responsible globalization. And, and I'm, I like it. I feel like we should make T-shirts and, and start selling. <laughs> that's about, Sounds that's like a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, are you optimistic about our future? I am. I'm eternally optimistic. I hope you believe that of me. <laughs> I do, um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. For the past uh, five years, a lot of uh, the work that I'm doing, for example, as I said earlier, um, you know, I'm looking at inequalities. I recently completed a project that looks at how individuals um, ex- make sense of the inequalities they're faced with. And I, 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 I recently sent an article for publication. It's in review. I think this whole concept of humanizing initiative, uh, in my mind, is an optimistic one. In my mind, it offers hope during dark times, as we, particularly as we go through COVID-19 and look at some of the inequities, uh, disparities, exclusion of voices. We need to become more aware of um, there are better days ahead of us 
But in order to get to those better days, we have to change the way we lead. We have to change the way we think. We have to change the way we conceptualize societies, globalization, and leadership as well. Um, yeah, so I think I'm eternally optimistic, and that's my uh, hope message. <laughs> uh, you know, humanizing initiative in my in my mind um, is is very optimistic, has an optimistic approach. Uh, one question that I like to ask people is to share a uniquely American Muslim experience. Do you, do you have one that you would like to share? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I wasn't born in the U.S. Um, I moved here some 15 years ago after I got married to join my husband. So my story or my uniquely American experience is that of an immigrant, right? And uh, as you think of an immigrant experience, you know, I, I can take you back, if you recall, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Uh, when Alice met the caterpillar, it asked her, uh, who are you? And Alice replied by saying, I don't know, something to that effect. She said, I don't know at present. At least I know who I was when I got up in the morning. But I think that must have changed um, several times since then. So I think... Um, being an immigrant is uh, uh, is like um, being a minority and majority, searching for and establishing your identity, not only for yourself, but also for your children. So, Asad, you may be able to relate that uh, with your experience. Oh, 100%. Uh, uh, with your experiences uh, of parents. Um, so I think um, as an immigrant, it's about evolving with your identity as you learn and also regain new perspectives. And I'm really fortunate that I have um, an opportunity as an academic um, to share my experiences, but also to hear my students and my research participants' experiences. And since um, I study globalization and cross-cultural management, I think I, I count myself very, very lucky because it gives me an opportunity to formulate um, experiences and share that with my students as well. And then taking you know, hearing students' stories, hearing um, research participants' stories, relating them to your own stories, and then taking it back uh, to your home, along with your reflections. My son is 13 years old. He was born here. And just helping, helping him crystallize his own identity as yeah. an American Muslim has been very, very important to me. Um, so in the past 13 years, he's asked me a lot of questions. Sometimes I feel very sorry for him because he has an academic <laughs> mother, right? So giving very simple answers to the question he's asking, I'm always trying to think of very cognizant of my identity, as I said earlier, and I'm also very cognizant of the fact that he needs to sure. have a very strong identity. I realize it's going to evolve over a period of time, but being an American Muslim is very important to me. So, for example, he asked when he was four or five years old, uh, his name is Wise, and he asked me, Mom, why is my name Wise? Why am I not Jake? Yeah. And just going back and you know, sort of uh, communicating with him that your name has a beautiful meaning. And when you grow up, you would know the true meaning of um, your name. And uh, hopefully that has a um, huge impact on who he grows up to be. And then, um, you know, coming back from elementary school one day and asking me, Mom, am I American? Am I Muslim? Wow. Or am I a Pakistani? And just, you know, giving him those answers. You don't have to be one or the other. You can be all of that. So you are very fortunate in giving him this very positive message that uh, aren't you very lucky that you can be American Muslim Pakistani or Pakistani American Muslim? Uh, you can be all of that. Um, I would say it's not a unique story. I'm sure a lot of parents before me have experienced that. But I think as I think about 
my experience as an American Muslim, I definitely think about my work as an educator, as an academic, and I definitely think about being a mom and just shaping my son um, to adopt an identity that he can be proud of. Yeah. We'll have to have your son on the show at some point once he, when, as he's going through this process. I would love to, <laughs> if he figures it out, he can share it with me. <laughs> yes, we're all trying to figure it out. Yeah, right? Right, exactly. You know, sometimes as a parent, you're trying to figure it out, but then you give a message to your child that you you got it all figured out, right? Yeah, that's true. That's 100% right. Um, thank you so much for joining American Muslim Project. This has been a, a tremendous conversation. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Seth. I spoke to Dr. Kilji in March of 2021, and following our talk, she emailed me saying that the conversation inspired her to write a poem, the first one that she's written in nearly two years. I asked her if she'd read it for us. A slice of me. What you heard and saw today. Don't let it cringe or blow you away. Hold back. Do not yet pass your decree, for that is just a slice of me. Presented in a minor snapshot of time, a performance, an expression, or a mime, within predefined bounds and necessity, leaving out the nuanced complexity. Hold back, don't let it foresee, for that was only a slice of me. We're really grateful to Dr. Kilji for recording and reading that for the show. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining American Muslim Project. We'll have links to everything that Dr. Kilji mentioned um, in our show notes, so definitely check it out. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Today's show was researched and edited by Mark Inato and Lindsay Gamble. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. You can follow us online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Mm-hmm.